This is Mike Wong, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Before we dive into today's discussion, I have a quick announcement. I will be at Star Trek Mission Chicago in April 2022. It'll be my first Star Trek convention in nearly three years, and my first Star Trek convention ever as a speaker. I'll be giving a talk called To Seek Out New Life, The Astrobiology of Star Trek, and I am so many emotions at once. If you are attending Star Trek Mission Chicago, I would love to see your friendly face in the audience as we go where no science of Star Trek talk has gone before. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce our two incredible guests today. The first is meteorologist and storm chaser Katie Nicolau, who is an Emmy-nominated broadcast meteorologist in Sioux City, Iowa. The second is Dr. Simon Clark, who earned his PhD from the University of Exeter, studying atmospheric dynamics, and is now a, quote, recovering academic which in his case roughly translates to badass science communicator spanning multiple media from YouTube and Twitch to writing and podcasts. The theme of today's episode is favorite instances of weather and climate in Star Trek. And just so that we're on the same page, climate is the word that we use to describe long-term atmospheric conditions, whereas weather describes day-to-day changes. I like to think about it like this. The makeup of your wardrobe, taken as a whole, is a reflection of the climate that you live in. You know, is it packed with parkas and scarves? Or do you have 10 different rain jackets? Or is it full of a variety of sunglasses and a bunch of beachwear? On the other hand, the weather determines the particular items that you pull out of your closet on any given day. So similarly, you might hear people say things like, while any given storm or heat wave can't be attributed to climate change alone, the overall frequency or magnitude of extreme weather events when taken together is absolutely indicative of our changing climate. So, in this conversation with Katie and Simon, we are going to explore small-scale weather phenomena like clouds and tornadoes, and also wide-scale planetary phenomena like greenhouse gas concentrations and atmospheric temperature structure, as we see them in Star Trek, and as they relate to all of us. So I'm excited to welcome meteorologist Katie Nicolau and atmospheric scientist slash YouTuber and awesome science communicator Simon Clark to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. It's so great to be talking to both of you today. Oh, it's great to be here. (laughs) Yes. Um, So today we are going to try a slightly different format. 
our two guests have each brought their three favorite instances of weather and climate in Star Trek. And we're going to have a blast going through them, geeking out and discussing the real life science behind all of those scenes. But before we begin, let's get to know Katie and Simon a little bit more. So Katie, you know, like so many little kids growing up, I had a cloud phase uh, when I would obsess over memorizing all the different cloud types. Um, but just like my dinosaur phase and my roller coaster phase, I never really made any of those things into a career. But you're a professional meteorologist. I guess you never grew out of your cloud phase. <laughs> <laughs> Not a chance. You know, one of the ways Mother Nature ensures that you'll become a meteorologist is you get a tornado every 10 years that you just get sucked into. And that was literally me. When I was five, I think it was, we were driving home and a tornado hit uh, basically where we were driving. It was at night. It was the 2000s. We didn't even know what was going on because we didn't have cell phones. And then we got home, found out there was a tornado. And I, being the weird kid I was, was like, I love this. And my parents were like, ha, okay, pat on the head. Let's take you to the library. And they got me all these weather books. And then back in high school, a tornado hit my house again in Michigan. Like, it's weird that it happened. It doesn't happen. I feel like Michigan. the universe is trying to tell so, you something. <laughs> literally. And that's the what I took from it. So I was like, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I've loved it ever since. <laughs> That's amazing. Very good. Yeah, it's great when, you know, you, you find out early on what you want to do with your life. And uh, that was that tornado, I guess, or multiple tornadoes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very good. A sign from the heavens that it had to happen. Literally, right? <laughs> yeah. And then a backup, just in case you didn't get the message the first time. <laughs> yeah. Looks like she might be interested in dinosaurs. Quick, send another tornado. Exactly. <laughs> Sudden hailstorm. Let's just reinforce yeah uh well um i'm happy and i guess all of the uh fandom is happy that you've chosen weather and uh and you put your own star trek spin on that we'll return to that point in just a sec but i wanted to jump over to simon you have a phd in atmospheric physics and you are now a video maker and science communicator i think there's this perception out there that the only thing that one can do after they get their phd is to just do more research but that is clearly false uh, there are a multitude of possibilities and could you just tell us about your transition from doing atmospheric physics to being a professional science communicator when I finished the PhD, I was in this really strange position because as well as doing the research required and you know get, getting yourself to the point where you could spring into a full-time career as an academic, I'd also been making videos and I've been making videos for the previous five or six years, really kind of semi-regularly and um, built up this following on YouTube. And it was got to the point where I submitted my thesis and went, well, you know what? I think I could make a go of this. Like I didn't anticipate it being successful, but I thought I'd regret not trying. So mm -hmm. ever since that moment, I've been just bumbling through and trying to make it look like I know what I'm doing. And eventually you con enough people and they start calling you a professional. And uh, <laughs> that's that's been my progression, basically. <laughs> Yeah, well, bumbling through, meanwhile, getting thousands and thousands of followers and millions of views on YouTube, I'd say you are definitely a professional. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it a lot of the time. My community often questions on Discord Aww. or Twitter. <laughs> So Katie, back to you. You are very famous in the Star Trek community for your incredible fandom forecasts where you tell your audience about how to dress for their excursions to places such as Vulcan, Kronos, 
and Andoria. <laughs> yeah, Star Trek has clearly influenced not just your life, but also your work. Tell me about your relationship to the show. Yeah, basically, I mean, I was never the kind of person who was going to be on TV and like just all out there, really happy, peppy personality. I was afraid to leave my house when I was in middle school. I had horrible anxiety. Because of the tornadoes. Literally, yeah, I think I got, I had a nervous breakdown, but I, I just was so over a lot of things. And then I accidentally bumbled into my parents' bedroom at like midnight and my dad was watching, of all episodes, Star Trek TNG Gambit Part 2. Wow, that was my first episode of Star Trek. Incredible. And I, I just thought it was really cool. And I started watching it and I started to pick up on the science and the logical thinking of things. And it helped me through my anxiety. And so I've just had Star Trek as my comfort show ever since then. And it's helped me grow as a person and get back to the person that I want to be. So I really, I thank Star Trek for helping me with that. I totally feel you there with Star Trek being that comfort show, especially the 90s treks that you, you go back yeah. to. When I watch an episode of Voyager, I feel like I'm just sitting in the living room surrounded by, you know, old friends. Um, that's the exactly. show I grew up on. Yeah. Yep. Voyager, my go-to episode of any Star Trek is Voyager, worst case scenario. Oh. I don't know why. I just love that episode with a passion. <laughs> I love it too. It's a fun one. So Simon, we were put in contact by our mutual friend and colleague, Dr. Hannah Wakeford, whom you partnered with last year to produce this brilliant YouTube video about exoplanets in Star Trek The Next Generation. So you obviously have deep connections to the franchise too. Tell me about your relationship to Star Trek. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit of a weird one, I suppose, because I grew up and my mum was a massive sci-fi nerd. She was the, my intro into all of this. My dad was a huge fantasy fan. He was the one that made me re read Lord of the Rings. My mum, when I was, I think, seven, it was the Star Wars special edition came out and she bought mm -hmm. the VHS tapes and we watched them one after the other. And from that point on, I was like, I'm in. I love space sci-fi. <laughs> and so I remember TNG being on the TV and I don't, I remember, I must have seen the occasional episode of DS9, but the one that really stuck in my head was actually Enterprise, which is mm -hmm. sort of funny. That to me is the nostalgia series, even though it's like the one that seemingly is sort of, that's the pariah of the old Trek. Um, but that was my comfort watching there was like there was actually an amazing sunday slot on british tv where it would be all back to back you'd have a stargate sg1 star trek enterprise scrap heat challenge like these these programs that just like kind of define my interests for years afterwards yeah. and then when i went to uni i suppose i just sort of fell off the wagon a little bit i didn't watch tv when i was studying and then relatively recently over the past kind of like three or four years i've really got back into it and i marathon through all of tng on netflix i'm currently midway through watching all of ds9 and listening to the greatest generation podcast along with every episode and um it's just been wonderful to like kind of it's it's like slipping into an old pair of jeans or something it's just like oh yeah i remember this this is nice this is comfy and i, can, I know what where i'm going to be for the next 40 minutes or so <laughs> <laughs> wonderful yeah and we're going to get a little star trek enterprise nostalgia later on this mm. hour um but let's begin with the Deep Space Nine episode, season five, episode seven, titled Let He Who Is Without Sin. Katie, you're bringing this to us as an example of a favorite kind of uh, weather scenario in Star Trek. Could you set the stage for us with this episode? Totally, yeah. So with this episode, a lot of people remember it as the Worf on Risa episode because it's where <laughs> Worf and Jadzia and then you also have uh, Quark and everyone goes to Risa, basically. And 
Worf has a tough time just hanging out and having fun. And all of a sudden, these people just show up and they're like, we're going to, this pleasure planet, this is what's wrong with us right now. We're in a war, blah, blah, blah. And so they decide to ruin everyone's vacation. Pretty much the synopsis of the episode. <laughs> and the, the thing that's really interesting about this for me is the whole idea that Risa is a pleasure planet that controls the weather. It's a naturally very humid, rainy climate. And they took the time in this sci-fi series to actually figure out the climactic effects of a weather control grid. And I love it so much. <laughs> So, Katie, what do you think it would take to try to control the weather on a planetary scale? Does that seem feasible at all? Or do we kind of have to wait until we get into, you know, the 24th century and you have other amazing near magical technologies like warp drive and transporters before you can even imagine how you would try to control the weather of a planet? For the weather of an entire planet, you'd have to have Q-like powers, really, because <laughs> if you think about it, one supercell thunderstorm, a large, possibly tornadic storm, has a rough equivalent of around five atomic bombs. Ooh. That's the amount of energy that these storms have. So in order to even equal that, you would have to have that much power. And just for one storm, imagine an entire atmosphere. It's just so hard to grind those gears to a stop and manipulate the atmosphere to the point that you can actually completely change the climate. It takes a lot of time and a lot of energy put into it to change things. So unfortunately, I don't think we'll be able to change it on a large scale. People always bring up the option of, oh, we do cloud seeding and stuff like that to make it rain. That's very small scale. And then you're actually making an even larger problem because you're sucking all the remaining moisture out of the atmosphere. And now it's super dry. So it's like, you can't just make it a nice, even temperate climate as much as we'd like. Mm. I think so much of the problem with this is the fact that humans are really bad at understanding how big the atmosphere is. That is, that is, exactly. you know, we think of it as being this sort of very wispy thing that doesn't really have any mass to it or anything. But like, you know, above every single square meter of Earth, it's what, 10,000 kilograms of air that's just oh, crushing yeah. down on you. And then as soon as you start thinking in those terms, yeah, the energy that's required is... And it's astonishing. And it's why, you know, the classic response that people hear about, why can't we just, you know, if we don't want a hurricane to come in, why can't we just nuke it? And it's like Pinch's yes. bridge of nose. Like, I, I don't, I, you realize it's like trying to stop a runaway train by like, you know, firing a super soaker at it. Like, it, <laughs> exactly. it's, it's a totally different order of magnitude. You're just looking at it like we don't have enough nukes in the world <laughs> yeah. so you to disrupt it. And then it would just reform if you have the same atmospheric conditions, like just not. And then also the. The, the, your point about, you know, you're, you're basically moving moisture from one area to another with cloud seeding. And like, because it's a chaotic system, there is no way of knowing, you know, even with all the computing power on board the enterprise, you, there's no way you could calculate the, by, by changing the flow at one location, what would happen elsewhere for a couple of days afterwards. Like as a problem, it's just a, a perfectly complicated system. So exactly. this is really interesting. Katie, you brought up the energetics problem. And then Simon, you talked about this information problem that the, you're actually, it's not just one or the other. You've got these two forces working against you if you wanted to try to control the weather. First, it's energetically nearly impossible. And second, computationally, you know, how do you even know what you're doing? <laughs> yeah. um, that's, that's, that's really amazing. But apparently, okay, so fast forward into, you know, the 24th century, we've got all these amazing technologies, the enterprise computer, you know, is, is working at unfathomable speeds. Somehow on RISA, there is a weather control system, and it makes a planet basically perfect it looks like i don't know 
name your favorite beach. It's that beach everywhere all the time. I wanted to know, would you actually want to control the climate in this way and make it not wet and damp and, uh, you know, storm every once in a while? Because without rain... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what is going to mm-hmm. happen to, you know, is it going to be habitable oh, still? Yeah. Well, you have such massive environmental repercussions for the biology of everything. The biological life would be completely changed. That'd be like going from a rainforest to Iowa. Like it just, it doesn't make <laughs> sense. You would lose so much biodiversity because you just wouldn't have that heavy, humid, wet climate anymore. So I think if you wanted to manipulate the weather, maybe on a town scale, that wouldn't be quite as bad because you've already pretty much moved most of the ecosystem out. But if you tried to do it on an entire planet, say goodbye to the life because it's going to be completely different. Mm-hmm. It's also mm-hmm. worth saying that it's it's how homogenous it is. And this is something that I sort of have with Caldos. I think it makes a little bit more sense with Caldos, but it's having the same climate absolutely everywhere. Because, you know, the climate is defined by the, the temperature and the humidity. Well, that's one way of defining your local climate. And it effectively says you have a perfectly homogenous distribution of, of humidity and of temperature, which implies that the amount of heat transport that's taking place from the equator towards the pole is absolutely enormous because the poles on riser seemingly are exactly the same as the equator. And that ain't right. That, that should not be the case. <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Right. And so so maybe these, uh, quote unquote, new essentialists, these people who are trying to restore the moral and cultural traditions of the Federation, and to do so, they try to wreck the weather control system on Risa. Maybe a better motivation for what they're doing is to like restore some kind of actual balance to this planet's exactly. like weather and not try to, you know, go back to the cultural traditions of the Federation or whatever. Yeah, so Mr. Wolf would ab- comfortable. <laughs> Mr. Wolf would absolutely be in Greenpeace right now. Oh <laughs> like, my gosh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone else is there on like the Rainbow Warrior or whatever, and then there's just this like six foot something cling on. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, yes. Well, I peacefully contribute too. my bat left to this demonstration. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, they play in on the episode just as far as the storytelling aspect goes with Worf being the person who's down to earth, who's rugged, who's not used to a comfortable life, who sees pleasure planets as something that isn't really necessary. And then you also have these people who are like, you become too complacent in the Federation. We become too comfortable. So it makes sense that Worf's the one that they pick out to help. But just as far as the weather is concerned, I feel like on Kronos, they have violent weather swings, so they could benefit from a weather control grid. So you think Worf might be a little bit more in touch with how changing that could cause problems. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I guess just from a Star Trek fan perspective, I did appreciate in this episode uh, how they kind of explained why Worf Worf's personality is just the way that he is, such a stoic, restrained Klingon, and I think that just plays into the whole narrative and drama here. As much as I'd love to spend all of our time on Ryza, uh, we do need to move on. <laughs> and I think, uh, Simon, you mentioned Kaldos uh, already, Kaldos 4, from the TNG episode um, in Season 7. This is Episode 14, Sub Rosa. This is the famous episode where Beverly gets it on with a ghost. Um, yep. I'm so glad you brought in this episode because I'm not sure under what other context we would be able to talk about this one on Strange New Worlds of Science and Star Trek podcast uh so simon why don't you go ahead and set the scene for uh sub rosa 
Okay, I'm going to be straight out of the gate. I'm going to say that I picked this episode and this planet because it is an interesting example of geoengineering and also because it is one of the worst episodes of Star Trek. (laughs) I just wanted to draw attention to it because, I mean, okay, basically, it's also, if I remember rightly, this is also a Jonathan Frakes directed episode. So it's like really, you know, it looks great. And the first shot is like this really big crane shot of a funeral taking place. And, you know, it pulls out and you're like, oh, this is going to be great. Oh boy, are you wrong. Um, because it's basically the, the crew of the Enterprise are over this this planet called Kaldos. I think it's Kaldos 4 in some places and Kaldos on its own in other places. Mm. Um, and what it is, is it's this temperate looking planet where everyone speaks with horrific Scottish accents. And I... it, oh, it's a, did it touch the candle? And <laughs> stuff like that. It's so bad. And basically, you know, the, the crew are there for this funeral because it turns out that Beverly's, uh, Dr. Crush's mother, grandmother, sorry, died. And that apparently means they send the, the flagship of the entire Federation to pay their respects at the funeral. And they stay for a couple of days because they've got, not much else to do as the flagship of the entire federation um and basically you know that the reason they're staying is because there's some problems with the weather manipulation grid that's why the ship stays and whilst this is happening beverly crusher finds a candle in her grandmother's house along with uh, there's so much that's strange about this episode possibly the strangest thing is that she finds her grandmother's diary of all the, you know, what she got up to with this person. Um, I actually can't remember the name of the character off the top of my head. Um, That's how forgettable this episode is. <laughs> oh, in some ways. But like, you know, she starts reading this diary and it turns out that her, her granny basically started having this affair with this this i mean to be fair impossibly handsome man they cast in the <laughs> in the role um and she and you know she's talking to to troy about it and she's like it's oh, it's incredibly erotic and it's like i no you you're, you're reading your your dead grandmother's diary and you're describing how she's getting it off with this person and you kept reading that's one of the the biggest suspensions of disbelief in the whole episode but anyway let's leaving aside the drama side of disbelief <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the really incredible thing is that somebody found this planet and they chose to turn it into a planet-wide Scotland, which I have Scottish relatives, I absolutely adore Scotland, but if you were to pick a climate you probably (laughs) wouldn't pick Scotland. Yep, my my half of my family's from Scotland. They live in Perth and Dundee, so I understand that. <laughs> I mean, it's be- it's a beautiful when the when the sun shines in Scotland. It is one of the most beautiful places in the world. The problem is that is a like a one in ten chance on any given day. So it, it, you know they they took this planet and they used a weather a weather control system that is deliberately left quite vague. But they also stabilized the planet's geology, so there's no earthquakes. And the whole planet from space is this kind of emerald jewel. It looks like it's you know very lush and and, and temperate and green. I think this makes more sense than Risa because it is so temperate and because being Scottish, it has a a maritime climate, meaning that it is quite humid. And if you were to try and transport heat from the equator to the poles to try and make it that bit more homogeneous in temperature, you would require a thick atmosphere. And part of that temperature transport could be in the form of of water, you know, large latent heat fluxes. So it makes a little bit more sense, but not a huge amount more. The other thing that also doesn't make any sense is that it's one of these Star Trek episodes where the technology is 
basically indistinguishable from magic in mm -hmm. the the ghost yes. that inhabits the lamp uh, that Beverly falls in love with basically makes the the bridge on the Enterprise really foggy and then starts casting lightning like a D and D character in yeah. like various <laughs> parts of the episode. Um, it may, on so many levels, this episode is a disaster, and for that, it's phenomenal. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of the yeah, episodes I, mean, I would gladly go back and watch just to appreciate how bad it is. It's such a fever dream. It mm. literally is. My favorite part is probably when Geordie and <laughs> I mean Geordie and Data excavate the granny from the ground yes. except they don't actually dig her up I think they just get the transporter to like just beam the coffin yeah. which is interesting because earlier in the episode they have some guy who has to manually fill in the grave who presumably yeah. sees this and goes why didn't they do that in the first place anyway um, oh, my back's in pain and I could have just skipped all this work I for eight hours uh, but like you know they, they, they put the coffin out of the ground and then they open it and this little old lady comes up electrocutes Geordie and Data with this <laughs> like green force lightning and then turns around and is just like Beverly it's fine don't be afraid <laughs> it is like the most bizarre like 10 seconds in all probably all of Star Trek yeah honestly yes and that, that comes up with Al Moraine like all of that it tops everything mm, yeah they really went hard at the start of DS9 and then they kind of raided back exactly. after <laughs> after out of the brain. They're like, well, Sub Rosa did this, so we can go ahead and go on. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Never go full Sub Rosa. <laughs> I want to make that into a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> what, with the lamp? Just never go yes. full Sub Rosa. <laughs> I'll buy that. I'll buy that. I'll wear it proudly. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask about this atmospheric humidity because there is a scene between LaForge, Data, and um, I guess the governor of this entire planet-wide Scotland, uh, where they're talking about the subsystem that is responsible for the weather malfunction, and it seems to be something that regulates the atmospheric humidity. Governor, did you know you had a power fluctuation in your weather control system? No. Our weather control's been working perfectly for the last 22 years. No, I can't isolate the exact source, but the fluctuation seems to be originating from one of the substations that regulates atmospheric humidity for the colony. Is this going to be a problem? No, not yet, but power distribution patterns are already off by 5%. I suggest we analyze the planet's weather patterns to see if they have been affected. I am reading unusually high humidity across the entire southern desert region and there is increasing cloud activity above the northern coastal area, possibly the formation of a storm system. A storm? It's the middle of summer. We don't have rain at this time of year. Beta, let's see if we can correct this. I'll check out the colony's climatic flow array. I will run a diagnostic on the thermal regulators. And Simon, you mentioned that changing a planet's humidity to make it more humid is more plausible than making everything look like, you know, the, the, the most beautiful beach ever. Are there ways that one could imagine trying to influence the humidity of a planet in the not too distant future or even right now? Are we doing this with climate change? Tell me about humidity and what controls all of that and what the effects are on a planet's climate. Yeah, so we are, as as in an awful lot of aspects of sort of, you know, large scale geoengineering, we are unintentionally doing it right now with climate change. Um, one of the attributes of air is that the warmer it gets, the more moisture it can hold, which is a problem because water is the most sort of significant greenhouse gas in our atmosphere. So there's a feedback loop of you, the, the warmer the planet gets, the more water goes into the atmosphere, which mm. traps more heat, the warmer the planet gets. So that is something that we are kind of doing at the moment the planet's atmosphere is generally holding more moisture. And 
that has non-linear consequences. It has that sort of relatively trivial consequence of global temperature, but it also has these consequences of changing the distribution of where that moisture goes. So where the precipitation patterns fall as rain or as snow or, or what have you. So, you know, already immediately everything starts to spaghetti out of your hands and it starts getting really, really complicated. So if you were to try and manipulate a planet's atmosphere to hold more water, you could simply accomplish that by adding more of a certain greenhouse gas like carbon dioxide or or methane mm-hmm. or whatever. You could, I suppose, again, we run into an energetics problem here, but you could um, heat up certain sections of the planet's surface from orbit. If you use some kind of short wavelength radiation so that it passed through the atmosphere and just heated up the surface like a body of water. If you notice mm-hmm. that there's a sudden localized minimum of your humidity, you just heat up the surface, cause evaporation, and then suddenly you've caused water to bloom up into the surface. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could do it with modern technology. You could do it in a more localized way as you're getting around some of the energy constraints in the relatively near future. But as with Bryce, it's probably worth saying that this is far beyond and what we're seeing on Caldos is far beyond what we could feasibly do. Though I do know actually that looking at the memory alpha page, uh, this was one of the earlier attempts at geoengineering that the Federation did. So I'd be curious as to looking at the progression that the Federation made in trying to manipulate the planets of planets and maybe wondering if actually they just decided to give up because it wasn't worth all of the hassle (laughs) of all of the ghosts that started appearing and interfering with their systems. (laughs) Well, you you mentioned the amount of energy that it would take. That's the main problem with weather control in any sense, positive, negative, whatever you have. You're going to have to have a way to have a satellite possibly to shoot that radiation to try to heat up the surface on a large scale how do you get the energy up towards that radiation center up in space how does that energy transport work it's it's chaos and i'm glad i don't have to deal with it i suppose you could do some kind of orbital lens you could have something at a lagrange point possibly and then, you know, you just basically, Ooh. it's almost like the eye of Sauron, basically. You just sort of focus, yes. you know, sun, sunlight at a particular location. Don't, Elon Ooh. Musk, if you're listening, don't I'm, do that. <laughs> I'm just imagining, <laughs> any, like, any billionaires listening, do not do that. Using a magnifying glass on an anthill kind of a thing. Yeah, which, and, and I should point out that this is, that's the opposite of one of the proposed solutions in quotation marks to global warming, is to effectively put a lens that instead of concentrating sunlight onto the earth, actually just disperses it. So having a, oh God, what would that be? A concave lens as either a, a, an array of satellites or, you know, some combination of, of, of mirrors or whatever have you i feel obliged to point out that this is not a good idea uh because it does not address <laughs> the fundamental problem of we have too much carbon in our atmosphere but that is <laughs> exactly. that is i suppose something that you know it, it is another way that you could feasibly do this sort of like a sun shield a giant sun shield in space yeah now, now you're getting into the on top that's of a mr Earth. burns uh that's a mr yes. burns solution <laughs> So also in this episode, I believe it's a data quote as well. There's a name drop of a certain cloud, a cumulonimbus cloud. That's one hell of a thunderstorm. Bridge to engineering. Mr. Data, we're reading an extremely large storm system over the Caldos colony. I thought that the weather control malfunction was not severe. It began as a minor power fluctuation, sir. But the effect has spread throughout the control grid. It has caused an unusual concentration of cumulonimbus activity above the colony. Could you remind my seven-year-old self what a cumulonimbus cloud is and what that means for the weather of the colony? I'm actually really thankful to the, the Pixar movie Up, 
because there's that scene in Up where the house is flying towards, um, I think he's just left the city. And then uh, Russell points out there's a cumulonimbus cloud and it's this big towering anvil shaped cloud. Actually, uh, Katie, you're probably the better person to ask it. I mean, what are the conditions for, the, for them to form? Absolutely. Well, cumulonimbus clouds are really just the evolved form of a cumulus cloud. And it's kind of like Pokemon. It's really strange. But what you have is this basic cloud that starts out. It's puffy. It's really light and fluffy looking almost like a cotton ball, the classic cloud that people draw. But then as long as you have updraft, you have warm air rising and forcing moisture from the ground up into the atmosphere. As it cools, you get this towering cloud to build and build. And if we keep getting that warm air rising, you're going to add more and more moisture to the atmosphere and you're going to create this cloud that's a cumulonimbus cloud which is just a very fancy word for the term thunderstorm cloud for many people and that's a thunderstorm it's a cumulonimbus you have these towering cloud shapes that have lightning and wind and possibly even hail and tornadoes it's just the kind of fun cloud that i really like (laughs) the researcher in me is obliged to point out that the reason that we say that anvil shape and they have these flat tops is because Basically, we think of the atmosphere as, as something that has three-dimensional movement and you can you can move air masses vertically, but that only takes place up to a certain point in the atmosphere. When you reach the stratosphere, vertical motion is completely inhibited. So what you find is this, this upwardly mobile air shooting up through a cumulonimbus cloud, you know, carrying all of this moisture with it. So you can actually see it. And then it hits the bottom of the stratosphere, it hits the tropopause, and it can't go up. So it has to spread out. So you end up with this really flat top with a little bit of an overshoot where there's just enough energy for it to poke up into the into the stratosphere but you have this flat table like structure that really clearly allows you to see where the boundary is between the troposphere and the the stratosphere it's one of these really beautiful things Oh, it's really stunning. Cool. And if you didn't understand what was going on, you'd probably think the world was coming to an end. It's so cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of uh, world ending cloud phenomena and also things that get Katie really excited. Let's hop over to the TNG episode, True Q. Um, This is season six, episode six, where the Q continuum uses a tornado to kill Amanda Rogers' parents on Earth. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about tornadoes. But before we get to that, maybe Katie, you want to say a few words about this episode? Yeah, so this episode is one of those where you watch it and you remember, oh yeah, the puppies. Like that's what most people, or like the exterior of the ship. It's one of those two things. They don't really remember the tornado part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, and so basically what happens is Q's back and there's a girl named Amanda Rogers and she's an orphan because her parents passed away and she has Q powers. It's also the episode about climate change. Like that's the, 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 the vague plot that's going on in the background of all of this exactly like just in the the quietly in the background (laughs) it's one of those moments where tng in its very like kind of self-righteous way kind of turns to the camera and goes wow why would anyone pollute their own atmosphere and Mm. you know it's it's a very obvious like this episode is about climate change guys wink wink nudge nudge jab you in the chest like sort of (laughs) but kind of nice subtle references but no and this this episode most people classify as just a q episode but there is that weather and environmental aspect to it and that's what always drew me into the episode not just because it's a q story and i freaking love q but also the fact that they mention that oh the weather control grid failed and a tornado just happened to spawn because (laughs) my 12 year old self was like are you telling me there aren't tornadoes in the future what (laughs) 
<laughs> I was very distraught. And then I remembered it's sci-fi. But this episode, really, I think the tornado part is what causes all this to happen. It, it was the event that kicked off all the other events that we're talking about. And just the fact that the Q made a tornado to kill someone, that's a very inventive way to go about destroying something. Very dramatic. Something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Real flourish. <laughs> exactly. It's like, mm, let me see. I could drop an anvil on your head, a piano on your head, or a tornado. Mm. And of course, it's <laughs> Kansas. Like, <Right>. why? <laughs> it's so classic. Yeah. So Picard actually says to Q... A tornado somehow escaped the weather modification net and touched down in only one spot. Amanda's home. Well, you can never predict the weather. But tornadoes developed from existing storm fronts. But you see, there were no storm fronts in Kansas that day. Witnesses reported that the funnel materialized spontaneously directly over Amanda's home, destroyed it, and disappeared. Immediately, I want to ask the meteorologist here, how do tornadoes form? Can they just form spontaneously or must they be preceded by some kind of storm front, as Picard says? It would be a terrifying world if they just spontaneously formed. (laughs) I would not want to live on that planet. But no, what happens is you get warm fronts and cold fronts, which get their terminology basically from fronts and front lines in war on battlefields. And it's a battle between warm air and cold air. Either Mm. the cold air wins and we call it a cold front or the warm air wins and we call it a warm front. And then there's a couple of other fancy ones. But also (laughs) the main thing is, is you are in a battle zone. There's a frontal zone where warm air is rising, cold air is sinking. And when that happens, basically, my mine is more of a visual representation. So uh, listeners, take one of your index fingers, point it up at the sky, take the other one, put it on top of it and point it down at the ground. Now try to force them directly through each other. It's not going to work. So you kind of have to move around it and you kind of get the spirally sort of formation. And that's kind of what happens in a supercell thunderstorm. Even without a tornado, the whole storm starts to spin in this intricate kind of dance. And then you get the tornado. Tornadoes don't just happen with blue sky. You have to have an existing storm out there, whether it be a land spout tornado that doesn't necessarily fit in with what we typically think of with a spinning storm or a genuine tornado. There's still a storm there. And that's what really was cool about this episode is no there has to be something that is existing it can't just materialize it's like yes they did the research (laughs) (laughs) that makes me so happy yeah but yeah you just you have to have an existing storm that has spin to it and then something happens we we still don't know the exact cause of tornadoes like why some storms that have the exact same setup don't produce tornadoes when others do there's all these different theories and tests that are going on right now but there's no definitive this is it so it's still a work in progress, but we know there has to be a storm. And then when you want to break all the science, you're just bringing Q into your story. Exactly. <laughs> like, I that's can imagine what he does, right? <laughs> you have one meteorologist still on Earth who's just beating their head into a wall like this is the most boring place ever now. And then all of a sudden a tornado pops up and they're like, what the heck is that? <laughs> oh, man. I have to somehow builds Q into your weather prediction models. <laughs> oh, yeah. Random events. Just, um, just a little hazard, a little asterisk, like a 0001% chance. Yeah. <laughs> just that sort of stochasticity into your code. That's exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
Katie mentioned that uh, you go storm chasing every once in a while. Um, can you tell me just a little bit about what that's like? Does it as thrilling as I imagine it to be, which is basically like going in a little shuttle to a strange new world and trying to actually find a little bit of danger? Oh, completely. It's it's one of those things where you, it's the closest you can get to feeling the power of a cube, practically, because you're standing there looking at this monster of a storm. And for me, I'm chasing in the Great Plains of the United States, so there's not much out there. But there are telephone poles with wires. And if you're standing on the road and you're looking at the storm and the wind is blowing into the storm from behind you, it whistles in the wires. And mm. it is the creepiest thing ever. But you feel the power of the wind. You hear it the whistle and you just have this beautiful picture and all of it comes together. It either scares the daylights out of you or you are just the most energetic and enthralled that you've been in your entire life. <laughs> so I, I honestly, I've offered, I've talked to... Um, uh, LeVar Burton, because my first ever weather book was Tornado Alert, and it was a reading rainbow book. Mm -hmm. And I took it to my first Star Trek convention, and I had him sign it. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, I'm a meteorologist, partially because of your book. And he was like, oh, that's so cool. I was like, if you ever want to go tornado chasing, Mr. Burton, I I'd happily take you. <laughs> I think I've extended that offer to like four Star Trek alumni. So one of these days maybe they'll pick me up on that hopefully fingers crossed yeah um i'm supremely jealous that you get to do this like our weather in the uk yeah. i mean the, the, like western europe and the uk in particular is really interesting from a meteorological perspective because it's so varied and you really don't know what you're going to get from one week to the next but you don't get the spectacular storms you don't get the chance to chase like you yeah. do in, in the midwest and oh well, man if, i'm jealous if you're ever over here i will gladly take you chasing we got like three months out of the year where it is just prime so come on over <laughs> I will take you off on if I'm when I'm when I'm next in the country. I will take you off on that. Hundred <laughs> percent. Awesome. Always happy to make connections here on Strange New Worlds for people. Um, speaking <laughs> of uh, scary, spectacular storms with lots of very fast-paced winds, let's travel now to this Class J giant in the Star Trek Deep Space Nine episode Starship Down, which is the Season 4, Episode 7 episode. Uh, season 4, Episode 7, yes. Uh, <laughs> where uh, the Defiant takes refuge in... A, a gas giant with some pretty extreme winds. Um, Simon, you're bringing this one to us. Uh, do you want to set the stage? Sure. So this is just after sort of everything comes out about the Dominion and this is this new big threat and they are doing some trade in the Gamma Quadrant. So the Federation with the, the sort of Defiant as the representative is meeting up with this alien race from the Gamma Quadrant to talk about their trade and they're interrupted in the middle of negotiations by the Jem'Hadar turning up and the trading ship panics basically and dives into this gas giant's atmosphere to try and uh, hide from the ticks and the defiant <laughs> plunges straight in and uh, it's a submarine episode it's it's one of these i i love star trek and ds9 does this so well when it commits to a genre and i think this is the same season as like Armand bashir the james bond episode like oh, this is yes. peak ds9 so that's one of the reasons i picked this is just because i think it's a really fun episode the other reason that i i really like this is because they lean into a lot of the tropes of submarine movies including notions like the crush depth so when you're in a 
submarine on Earth in, in water, you can only go to a certain distance below the surface before the pressure on your craft gets too much and it mm -hmm. collapses. And what they basically do is flip this and say, well, the atmosphere of a gas giant is not like the atmosphere of a terrestrial planet in that if you go deep enough, it will also crush you. And yeah. so they have this gas giant that has very little visibility. So they're also forced to use like... Um, uh, I can't remember, is it Tetrion pulses as like a form of sonar instead of <laughs> using like visible systems? You know, it's, it, they are basically a submarine um, and they are forced to sort of <laughs> chase and pick their depth at, a, at relevant moments. And they also make very uh, explicit references to different levels in the atmosphere, which is mm -hmm. something that you don't often find in science fiction. They just think of the atmosphere as being, well, you know, it's, it's thick at the surface and it's thin at the top. That's about it. Whereas in this, they make reference to these distinct bands, which as somebody who researched the stratosphere and so is all about layers in the atmosphere, I just thought was really, really cool. Yeah, absolutely. This episode, you know, they started name dropping all sorts of cool features of the atmosphere. Like you said, the different layers. They mentioned 10,000 kilometer an hour winds. That's a big number. Can you sort of put that into context for me, Simon? Is that really, really fast? Is that, uh, you know, a light breeze and I just don't know it? What is that? <laughs> well, I mean, it also, I suppose it's worth saying that the wind speed only matters if there's a lot of stuff there to move. When you're talking about exoplanetary atmospheres, they can be incredibly thin and wispy. So 10,000 miles an hour, sorry, 10,000 kilometers an hour. Sorry, this is, this is a very much a metric universe. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> I always appreciate that about Star Trek, the fact that they made this conscious switch <laughs> to, to being uh, yes. to be metric. Um, so it's, it's, it's a large number with atmosphere to go with it. To put it in context, Earth has quite kind of middling wind speeds, really. I mean, we wouldn't say that on Earth because obviously they're pretty they're pretty powerful because there's a lot of mass to move around. You're looking at a couple of hundred miles an hour at the surface. You're consistently seeing in the stratospheric polar vortices, perhaps two or 300 kilometers per hour. So nothing compared to 10,000. Elsewhere in the solar system, Uranus, I believe, has the uh, strongest winds, uh, or it might be Neptune, actually, which is at the order of a few thousand kilometers per hour. So you're starting to get up there. Then you start to run into this issue, however, of actually taking observations of exoplanets and they're having large uncertainties in what we're measuring. But with that caveat said, there is the possibility that there are exoplanets with winds of around 10,000 kilometers per hour with very large error bars. <laughs> I do, I, as a scientist, I feel I have to stress that. But, it, yes. but it's, it's a possibility that you get stuff like hot Jupiters where you have these gas giants that are orbiting very close to their stars. You can get these extreme forces that will force the wind to go at those kinds of velocities. So on this planet, it's, it's class J. I don't think it's explicitly a hot Jupiter. It seems a little unlikely, but who knows? With so much we don't know about large exoplanets. Mm -hmm. And there's also uh, a name drop of Florian gas. I believe it's Bashir and Jadzia Dax. Uh, they're, uh, yes. they're, they're, they're trying to escape a hull breach. And there's this puff of air that they inhale. And Bashir says something about it being a lungful of Florian gas. Is that a gas that we would normally expect to be in a class J planet atmosphere? So, I mean, incidentally, this is also another great submarine trope. It's there's a hole breach. We've got to close the compartment. Oh, there are people still in there. <laughs> yeah, uh, that kind of thing. So I am not an atmospheric chemist, but I would be very surprised if you found planets with large quantities of fluorine in their atmosphere, because fluorine is one of the most reactive elements. You do see fluorine combining with other elements to form, for example, in Earth's atmosphere, chlorofluorocarbons. So there is fluorine in our atmosphere, but it is not 
as fluorine gas, which is the, a really horrific thing. It's um, if think of uh, chlorine gas, sort of the kind of gas that was used in, in World War One as a weapon. Uh, fluorine is basically the same, but more reactive. So you absolutely wouldn't want to breathe it in, but also you absolutely wouldn't find it in an atmosphere in its in its raw form. So fortunately, that's something that is probably the writers just stepping a little bit beyond the science. Right. And we should mention those uh, chlorofluorocarbons that you that you just mentioned. Those are um, molecules that we are responsible for putting into the atmosphere, right? We being human beings with uh, technology. Yeah. So uh, CFCs were invented in the mid 20th century as originally as a propellant for some stuff like the bug bomb, which was a form of insect repellent used by US troops in, in World War II in the Pacific, but also eventually used as a refrigerant. So you'd find it in well, refrigerators, basically, or freezers. Yeah. And it was eventually realized, however, that CFCs and other related compounds, when they reached the stratosphere, were effectively disrupting the Chapman cycle, which is this cycle that produces and maintains a level of ozone in the middle atmosphere, which is very important because it prevents ultraviolet radiation from reaching the Earth's surface, which is a very good thing, a very useful thing to do, because if we didn't have ozone in our atmosphere, it's quite possible that life wouldn't exist, because there would be so much ionizing radiation that DNA would not be stable for long enough for complex life to actually emerge. So, in short... delightful. Yeah, so in short, we want to keep the ozone in the atmosphere, um, and so we want to keep the the CFCs out of it, which is one of these massive environmental success stories that we passed the Montreal Protocol in the late 80s and uh, effectively since then the concentration of CFCs in the atmosphere has diminished massively and the ozone hole is projected to recover by some point in the middle of this century. There's a little bit of a wobble recently because there were a lot of emissions that were detected from China in particular but that seems to have been something that is compared to the, the quantity of emissions previously is actually not I'm not going to say unimportant, but it is an order of magnitude less than we were dealing with before. So it's, it is actually one of these examples of, hey, if we actually get our shit together and, you know, look at environmental issues on a global scale, we can actually make a difference. We can fix these problems. But unfortunately, there is still a large quantity of CSE gas in our atmosphere, but we're, we're working on it. Yeah, it's one of those stories that I always turn to when I when I need a little pick me up and you know a reminder that humanity's not all bad when we when we collectively decide to do good things we can actually accomplish it. Um, and I actually I did a video relatively recently on the effects of the protocol because there's there's one level of basically if we'd continue to emit CFCs then the ozone layer would have been destroyed and there'd be more UV on the surface. But then it was also um, there was a paper that looked at the ability of the biosphere to take in carbon from the atmosphere based on how much UV radiation it was receiving. And they basically found that at high doses of UV radiation, plants were way less efficient at sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. So it was expected that if we didn't actually pass the Montreal Protocol and stop emitting CFCs, that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would have increased by an absolutely absurd amount. I can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but you're looking at, you know, the equivalent of hundreds of parts per million difference over a century. It's a real mm-hmm. success story on like multiple levels that we yeah. weren't even aware of. We didn't even know that was a feature we were avoiding at the time. <laughs> it just got very lucky. Everything Looking is back, just so wipe your brow connected. like, oh yeah. boy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everything is just so connected in the atmosphere. That's why I think mm-hmm. it's a, a wonderfully rich system to study. I mean, you could even go towards the idea that if we didn't do anything about the CFCs, the ozone would be depleted. The ozone is the reason why our stratosphere even has that temperature inversion that makes it you know stable to convection in the first place and so those anvil tops to the 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 clouds that we were talking about you know a couple of minutes ago would not 
be like that, right? Without that ozone, mm-hmm. without that temperature structure in our atmosphere, everything is so interconnected. Uh, and one of the reasons why I love this episode of DS9 is because we get sort of these very deep connections between characters uh, that we generally don't get in other scenarios when they're all just milling about on DS9 and you know walking around the promenade. Here, they're sort of stuck in their own little portion of the Defiant and really connecting with one another in different ways. Let's move on to our last one from Katie, which is Broken Bow the first episode from Star Trek Enterprise. Here we are meeting the entire crew of the Enterprise for the very first time. Uh, It's going on its maiden voyage. And there's this scene where they go to Rigel 10, and it's sort of a like where we park the shuttle moment. (laughs) (laughs) They're looking for their shuttle in this snowstorm. And Malcolm Reed basically is mistaking phaser fire for lightning and expresses surprise that there would be lightning in a snowstorm. I've never seen lightning in a snowstorm before. The storm's kicking up too much interference. Katie, should Malcolm Reed have been surprised that snowstorms include lightning? Absolutely not. If he was anywhere (laughs) near versed in the early 21st century social media craze, uh, he would know that thunder snow is totally a thing. Uh, It was really made popular by meteorologist Jim Cantori at the Weather Channel here in the United States. And he has become basically the champion for thunder snow. He freaks out whenever it happens. And meteorologists everywhere are just like, oh my gosh, he's living our dreams. But it happens. I've experienced it myself. So it's it's, it's not entirely unreasonable to actually experience at some point in your life, because as long as you live in a place that gets thunderstorms in the summer and snow in the winter, you can have thunder snow right around the springtime, actually, is when it's really popular. So I guess my next level question is, what actually causes lightning and thunder? Um, how does that work? I mean, apparently it can work whether it's raining or snowing. So what is actually happening? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with cloud physics, because not every cloud creates lightning. It doesn't just work like that. You have to have a mix of actually creating static electricity. And what happens is in thunderstorms, especially, you have a lot of dynamic wind, like we talked about earlier, the warm air rising, the cold air sinking, and that causes a lot of mixing and spinning and collisions, especially. So you're going to end up with these little ice crystals up in the upper portions of clouds, bumping into each other, and rubbing into each other, and eventually creating enough static electricity that the cloud just needs to exert all of that electricity and expel it from the cloud. And so it connects with what we have down at the ground level and our static charges and boom they connect and it creates this lightning strike that we're most common and most people think of when they think of lightning is cloud to ground lightning i see so that can happen easily in snowstorms too as long as you have a convective element that thunderstorm like feel to it where you have that rising motion with Mm -hmm. snowstorms sometimes you just get that cold air just sinking down and it pushes everything down but if you have that rising and sinking in a perfect mix you can create that static charge and then you end up with thunderstorm you know you you get that charge transfer within clouds but something that we saw recently with the tongan eruption was you also yes. see it around volcanoes erupting so pyrocumulus clouds oh it's oh, such <laughs> a beautiful, so beautiful name <laughs> it's such a cool name uh, but i mean oh i think gosh, yes. i think the the eruption holds the record for the most um lightning strikes seen over a short period of time it's like 600,000 yeah. lightning strikes in 
a, a couple of hours. It's it was insane. an absurd level of, of activity. And considering that this is this is basically the first big eruption we've got this much data on. You know, we obviously mm -hmm. we have observations of Mount St. Helens and Pinatubo and all these other places, but this is just the first time we've had this much data available. Imagine mm -hmm. what the lightning must have been like around something like Krakatoa or, oh or any of these huge historical eruptions. That to me is mind boggling. I mean, there's yeah. so many reasons I would Pompeii. like to- Or Pompeii, yeah. There's so many reasons I'd love to observe these briefly and then leave rather than <laughs> having to stick around and find out about the consequences. Yes. But yeah, it, it, as a phenomenon, all it is is basically from a physics perspective, yeah, charged redistribution mm -hmm. and eventually building up a large enough potential difference that it's it's got to do what it's got to do. I have a couple of friends who are volcanologists that I talk with on Twitter and they're talking about, you know, just like in clouds where we have the ice crystals that collide in volcanic eruptions, you have ash and there's a lot of it. So a high concentration. So that's why you have so much more lightning in pyrocumulus clouds as opposed to thunder snow or even just a generic thunderstorm. Yeah, this makes me think about what it would have been like on the early earth where there was potentially mm. a lot more yeah. volcanism. And what I've learned here is that, you know, there should have been also a, a large amount of lightning associated with that mm -hmm. volcanism on the early earth. And who knows what cool kinds of prebiotic chemistry that could have initiated. They um, talk about the spark of life. Might be lightning. Spark of life being <laughs> lightning. Uh, speaking about uh, particles bouncing into each other and charges building up, that's sort of the general feeling that I got while I was rewatching this episode of Star Trek. Like the mm -hmm. tension between Captain Archer and T'Pol. Uh, yes. It's been years since I've watched Broken Bow, um, but uh, I kind of forgot about this major tension that the human officers on the Enterprise had with their Vulcan counterparts and it was kind of it made me a little bit uncomfortable actually sort of this like tension between the two um but I'm glad it was resolved in the end you know they found that they were could work together there wasn't any major like lightning strikes between Archer and Duvall uh, as a result um but I guess that's another it's a really interesting um that. yeah it's a very good comparison too I don't know if the writers intended it or not but they are really they're causing a lot of friction on the show so uh, lightning it works i think it all works together you're making me want to rewatch this episode again now like i do I, it I, I i was gonna finish ds9 and then do voyager and then do enterprise but you're making me want to break my streak <laughs> <laughs> well I'll tell you what if you ever come over here and chase there is broken bow in oklahoma i believe and mm -hmm. i've chased through it and we didn't realize it until we were in the town and i freaked out guys uh no one else on our storm chase even knew remotely when I was talking about, but I was like, we're broken bow. Where's the Klingons? Where's the Sullivan? And they were all just like, what is she going on about? Oh my I goodness. don't believe it. There is there is a sub Rosa Arkansas. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we got to hit all of the Star Trek related series on this chase. How about yeah. that? Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> a hell of a road trip right there. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the town is probably better than the episode. <laughs> better be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, let's move on to our last instance of weather and climate that we want to highlight on this episode today. This one comes from Simon, and it is the Earth in Star Trek First Contact. So, Simon, is this the Earth that they go back in time to, or is it the Earth that is Borgify that they're watching as they're traveling through this temporal tunnel? Uh, which Earth are we talking about? 
What struck me was, and I, again, this is, every one of my picks have been partly because of the science and partly because they're some of my favourite Trek. Like, First Contact is my favourite of the Trek films. And the it thing is, that struck yeah. me when I was watching it again was as the Enterprise follows the, the Borg, it's not actually the Borg cube, it's like the Borg sphere that mm -hmm. enters into the yes. atmosphere and starts giving off these chronometric particles, that they see this glimpse of future Earth that's been Borgified. And the way that they describe it was kind of interesting because... They say that there's high concentrations of various greenhouse gases, and they say methane, they say fluorine, which we've already talked about as, as not being realistic, yeah. and carbon monoxide. And it sort of made me think that it's this overpopulated planet, there's 9 billion Borg on it, um, there's high concentrations of, of greenhouse gases. It's kind of like looking into our future at the moment. It's yeah. al almost sort of the Enterprise seeing an alternative future where we don't sort out climate change. And then there was another interesting aspect to this as well, which is when they do go back to the 22nd century. Um, I, well, no, is it 22nd? Is it 2050? It's, they yeah, it's 2063. Is 2063, right? 2063, yes, yeah. is the Cochrane flight. That's because um, my brother and I want to go to Montana, regardless of if Star Trek actually becomes real or not. And we're just going to sit there that day for first contact day. Oh, <laughs> that's going to be you. amazing. Yes, <laughs> but yeah. So, so when they when they go back to the mid to twenty, they go back to twenty sixty three precisely. Actually, they calculate the the date based on the level of radioactive isotopes in the Earth's atmosphere because mm. they are saying it's probably about ten years after World War Three, which I just thought was a very interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit optimistic, isn't it? Um, it's it's the it's it's an interesting way of calculating the date because so much of atmospheric history in terms of researching the general circulation comes from investigations of what would happen if a nuclear war took place, where would the nuclear fallout go? An awful lot of American research that was done in the middle century was basically motivated by this fear of a nuclear war. And so I just thought that was quite a neat little kind of nod in, in the script to that being a method of, you know, it's almost using the results of that research, you identify where the nuclear fallout is and it tells you the date roughly. Wow, this is so cool. I guess so they're, they're, both of the Earths are relevant here from a scientific perspective. Uh, let me just comment on the Borgified one first. I, I totally picked up on, you know, methane as a greenhouse gas. It's it's flooding that atmosphere. And the first thing that, that I thought about was, okay, in First Contact, it is also established that the Borg really like very hot temperatures. They live at what, like 39.1 degrees Celsius? That's yeah. it, yeah. So yeah. be toasty. And so maybe they put that methane in the atmosphere because they wanted it to be really warm. I don't, yeah, that's true. I always anticipate, I always imagine that they just put it in the atmosphere because they didn't give a shit. They were just like, <laughs> we're going to do all our industrial processes. And we're just, yeah. well, because that was, that was what made me think. It was like, you know, are we the bad guys in, in some alternative universe future, you know, where they, they come back and they look at our planet and they're like, oh God, we've got to stop them now before they yeah. get to 500 parts per million of CO2. But um, yeah, I always imagined it was their industrial side of things but you're probably right if you know you could work out probably quite easily the necessary concentration of, of methane in order to produce a global average temperature of 39.1 degrees yeah i like what you said about that glimpse of the borgified earth could be read as a glimpse into our near future because uh, not only are we putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, we are also somewhat becoming more and more borgified as time goes on. I mean, we're already so connected to our technology. We may not wear it inside of ourselves yet, but you know, how could I live without my cell phone or my laptop? Um, how could I live without the internet? Yeah, our watches. It's uh, it's getting to that future. Maybe 
social media is the hive mind. I think yeah. if if humans were to discover an alien race somehow chilling on Alpha Centauri, I think one of the things we'd probably say to them would be your biological and technological distinctiveness will be added to our own. <laughs> <laughs> Like oh, we we think of it as being a good thing, but actually, it when you say it, like yeah, it is actually a very that's bold a bit menacing. <laughs> we are the bad guys in, in in so many like possible future movies. Humans are the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Like, what happens if a ball cube just a, a, appears and like I don't know. Well, the thing that you do if you wanted to try and avoid the nightmare scenario that we see in the future of climate change is kind of destroy global capitalism. So like. I don't know, a ball cube arrives and just starts blowing up the London Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange. And, you know, <laughs> one day everyone, this happens and all of capitalism just collapses. And everyone goes, what the hell was that? And it turns out it was an alien race stopping us from destroying our own planet. Like we're going to help theme. <laughs> but, but it also got me thinking, this, this, and, and this is sort of more the 21st century Earth. It got me thinking about if aliens were to find our planet several million years down the line, what signal would we have left and what they would look at is in the, the records of, for example, um, ice layers that have been impacted and, and laid down in Antarctica, they find this spike in carbon dioxide concentrations mm-hmm. and then probably like a slow kind of decline after we stop emitting them or perhaps more realistically go extinct. And sort of just seeing that as like from, from an alien's perspective of a future Earth was quite, I don't know, an interesting possible future to, to imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. And you would also see, I guess, Strata and the rock record uh, with all of the- Well, that's the, that's the thing. There's there's two, um, I can't remember, it's like the International uh, Council for Stratigraphy or something like that, that basically determines where different layers in the Earth's history come from. And I think the two criteria that they're proposing to use for where the Anthropocene begins is the layer in which you find nuclear fallout, carpeting large sections of the Earth, but also where you find plastic. And that is yeah. probably going to be our impact on Earth's stratigraphy in a couple of million years. There'll be this layer of just loads of plastic. And it will be because of microplastics yeah. in the ocean, kind of everywhere, mm-hmm. which as, as a future archaeologist would find and go, you know, what the hell happened here? There's this really weird anomaly that lasts a couple of, you know, in geological time, basically nothing. It would be like a tiny, tiny yeah. thin line. You know, thinking as an astrobiologist, I often wonder about what exactly is life. And sometimes at the most general level, you can think of life as just the way that information restructures flows of matter and energy and, you know, creates new sorts of things, whether it's a spike in CO2, that is uh, an effect that we've had on our planet or the creation of new materials uh, that never existed before us. So um, yeah, I think that this is a very fascinating question to think about, and we should probably do a whole other podcast episode about what you would find in a million years or several millions of years um, coming back to earth and trying to find evidence of our civilization if we're no longer around. But for the end of this episode, I think I just want to ask you two final questions. The first is, is there a weather or climate phenomenon that we haven't yet seen on Star Trek that you would love to have make an appearance on a future episode, Picard, Discovery, Lower Decks, Prodigy, Strange New Worlds. You have so many to pick from <laughs> in terms of series. Um, what phenomenon? I'd, I would want to see a sudden stratospheric mm-hmm. warming and the effects it can have on exoplanetary Ooh. atmospheres. Because So this is something um, I, I did an interview quite recently with uh, Professor Dan Mitchell at the University of Bristol. And he is a, a guy who has done a lot of work looking at Mars and some other exoplanets. Basically, what he was looking at is that on Earth, when a sudden stratospheric warming happens, 
it's a collapse of the the polar vortex, which is this kind of spinning donut of air in the middle atmosphere. And what it normally is, is this really kind of big boundary. It's a big barrier to air flowing from nearer to the equator to actually reaching the pole. And so when it's disrupted, it allows air that has been centered over the pole to gush forth and spread out with the rest of the atmosphere. Now, depending on the atmospheric structure and depending on which compounds are present in the atmosphere and sort of what the vertical structure is, you can get that all the way down to the surface. It's something we basically see on Mars. There's a polar vortex that kind of is the whole column of the atmosphere. And so when there are these spontaneous warming events, he calls them something a little bit different and he gets to call them something different because he named the phenomenon uh, on <laughs> Mars. Um, you effectively have this planetary barrier to motion that just gets removed. And suddenly a huge wave of new atmospheric consequences come into play. On Mars, it's not necessarily very obvious because it's a relatively thin atmosphere. But if you had an atmosphere on another planet that was, say, overwhelmingly nitrogen, you didn't have a radiatively active compound in the short wavelengths like ozone, then you could have a very thick atmosphere that basically just has a wall that is removed around the pole. And that could result in some fascinating different phenomena depending on how quickly, because in stratospheric warmings, it can happen very, very quickly. I'd love to see what sci-fi writers could come up with with that as like a, a starting point. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. So I need to ask some follow-up questions. I'm sorry if this is too detailed <laughs> for this podcast, but so you said, so in a nitrogen dominated atmosphere, thick nitrogen dominated atmosphere without ozone. So you're talking basically about an Archean type earth where you, you, yeah. you haven't had oxygenic photosynthesis flooding our atmosphere with O2 and therefore ozone as a photochemical byproduct of that, but still nitrogen, you know, dominated atmosphere. Uh, and then what actually triggers one of these warming events? Is it... Um... So it's basically triggered by atmospheric wave activity. So okay. this this is, um, and they're actually very low wave number because the boundary between the troposphere and the stratosphere kind of acts like a filter. So low wave number, meaning short wavelength waves, don't really propagate up. So what you end up with is these waves that are effectively the size of the planet. It's There's an area of high pressure on one side and an area of low pressure on the other side. And if enough of the dipole builds up, if it's a wave one type or if if it's sort of higher wave numbers, it can be a more complicated pattern. If that propagates up to the stratosphere in a large enough amplitude, it effectively acts as a break on the, the vortex. It, it basically deposits its momentum. It's actually a very cool feature of the atmosphere called the stratospheric surf zone, which is where these mm -hmm. waves break and deposit their momentum and they act like a break. Um, and because of a quirk of geometry, they only ever slow the, uh, the vortex down. And it happens all the time, but it's mm -hmm. when that uh, forcing is anomalously large that you then get the vortex just stopping and juddering to a halt and suddenly everything, it's chaos from that point onwards. Wow, okay. That is really cool. Um, Paramount Plus, CBS, uh, take note. <laughs> we want to see yeah, this. Yeah, please. In Star I want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, what uh, yes. weather phenomenon would you choose to put in a Star Trek episode? <laughs> see, I'm going more for lower decks at this point, but doing a fishnado <laughs> would be pretty cool. I actually, I just did a TikTok oh. on how we can't have sharknados really because sharks are smart and they sense pressure changes in the atmosphere. When it drops, they head to deeper water. So oh. the sharks sh in sharknados wouldn't really happen unless they were trapped in a very shallow <laughs> lake or something. But we get fishnados, we get frognados, there's been black antnados, jellyfishnados, snakenados, all of this recorded through human history where it's just been picked up in boggy areas and these tornadoes and water spouts just suck up these animals and drop them on towns and people have made connections to like biblical anomalies like just saying oh it was raining locusts or something or raining frogs 
that could have been a tornado for all we know. So I'd like to see that just happen. There's just a planet that is riddled with tornadoes and they just experience all manner of life falling on their heads. That that does sound like a great premise for a Lower Decks episode. Exactly. And also super fascinating that sharks can sense the pressure differences in our atmosphere and then run away from them. Like what, what intelligent creatures sharks are. No wonder they've survived oh, all yeah. these hundreds of millions of years on Earth. If it, if it oh, ain't yeah. broke, don't fix it. Like, you yeah. know, they've, exactly. they've stumbled on an optimal design. Yeah. Well, and it makes sense with, you know, hurricanes and how they do result in some violent changes in weather. So if they sense that area of lower pressure, they just get out. <laughs> if right. humans had that same sense, we'd probably be on a safer side of weather history, actually. I would love to see those those belugas in the last episode of Lower Decks um, yes. complemented by a, a crew of sharks. I think that would <laughs> be, be really amazing. Funny. Like this, uh, the Federation has belugas, the Klingons have sharks. I because oh well. <laughs> the the original design of the Enterprise D had aquatic quarters, yeah. right? Uh huh. Like yeah. it's it's actually in the ship design. So I I, I like this yeah. idea of you know one of the <laughs> like a shark is like a uh, shark to bridge. Um, something something is about to go wrong. <laughs> I can I, feel I, can, it. I can just feel it. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. There's got to be like a cloaked ship nearby, guys. I'm yep. getting some weird vibes. It's <laughs> <laughs> so weird, weird that I evolved to be able to sense cloaked warbirds, but um, I'm pretty sure I can I can sense <laughs> one off the now. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, this has been just a blast. I'm so glad you two decided to come on board Strange New Worlds. It's been wonderful fun geeking out with both of you. And I learned so much about Earth's atmosphere, the atmospheres of other worlds, fish frog snake natos um oh my goodness it's been it's been incredible um my last question for both of you is to please tell our audience how they might basically just follow your work as you continue to share amazing science and meteorology on the internet where can people find you after you simon oh we, we were both being too polite we did that thing yeah. where you're waiting at a door um <laughs> Uh, if people search for me on YouTube, I'm just Simon Clark. It's my name. And then I'm on all the socials pretty much as Simon Ox Fizz. Awesome. Well, I'm uh, at weather underscore Katie. Pretty simple, but I'm on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and Facebook if anyone still uses it. And then on YouTube, I have a channel called So Many Random Fandoms. And that's where you can find all my fandom forecasts, including one that's going to be updated after Star Trek Las Vegas. I'm going to try and get some of the Star Trek actors to voice over a portion of it. So it's oh. actually be pretty cool. I'm, I'm uh. thinking um, uh, just uh, helping out with Neelix's broadcast on Voyager, making everyone feel like they're back home, give some forecasts. Mm -hmm. We'll see. <laughs> Well, best of luck with that. I can't wait to see it. You know, it's not often that I walk into a room, physical or Zoom, and feel completely outclassed in terms of science communication. But as you just saw, Katie and Simon are on a level of their own. And rightfully so. I'm just a scientist who pretends to know how podcasts work, but they are literally professional broadcasters and disseminators of scientific content, and it really showed. I had such a blast learning from them, and I'm just so thankful that they beamed aboard Strange New Worlds to share their thoughts on six different instances of weather and climate in Star Trek. I can't recommend strongly enough 
going out and scouring the internet to check out all of their other amazing work. You will really love it. If you want to hear more about the topics that we discussed today on Strange New Worlds, make sure you check out episode 121, where I spoke to environmental journalist Dr. Maddie Stone about specific ways in which Star Trek can do better to tackle the subject of climate change. And finally, thank you as always to you, the listeners, for spending time with us here on Strange New Worlds. I hope to see some of you in Chicago next month. Until then, see you out there. Oh my goodness, is that a is that a cat? Is that radar or this is um, radar? Doppler? That's radar. <laughs> yep. This is radar. I have my other kitty who's Doppler and they're actual siblings from the same farm back in Michigan. Oh well, listeners, Whenever. unfortunately, you cannot see this, but there is an adorable cat on our Zoom screen right now. <laughs> Whenever a cat appears, I always, on a Zoom call, I always feel like um, Werner Herzog in The Mandalorian, where it's just yes! like, I would yes! like to see the baby. <laughs> like, <laughs> <see> the baby. <laughs> Hold Indeed. him up, please. Exactly. <laughs>